All right. Okay, mic works. That's great. Um, congratulations, everyone, for being here and getting that time change down. Um, <clears throat> I did that once really embarrassingly at university. Um, when I was in England studying at Cambridge, I showed up at our church, which is a church called the Round Church, uh, one morning. This was the spring forward rather than fall back, and I, I really i am not down with this whole thing at all. And um, it was, everything was completely quiet. There was not a soul there, uh, apart from me and this one other young lad, and I, I tried to take the initiative, and I thought, you know, I think we've got the, the clock change wrong here. Um, it goes uh, back, doesn't it? So let's, let's both come back here in an hour. Uh, now, it turned out that actually it was really quiet because everyone was inside praying. And um, when we both came back in an hour, everyone had left. So I sent this poor guy out into the day two hours wrong rather than one hour. Um, anyway, <laughs> one way or another, we all made it here this morning, so that's great. Um, okay, so um, we're back in Acts this morning. And uh, I wanted just to do a little bit of reorientation for us. We've got this little map up here to help us get set. Um, this is going to be hopefully um, familiar from stuff that we've done before. This is the Eastern Mediterranean. We have Michigan sat down there just to give us an idea of scale. Um, and the passage that we're going to be in this morning, which is Acts 17, is uh, going to take us into Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, so we're looking at about AD 50, something like that, 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. Um, and you know, um, this is because the clue is in the title, Second Missionary Journey. We had all that stuff with the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas were going into these cities here. So this is City and Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So they've basically been hitting this whole region, which is southern Galatia, and that's where the action has been recently. But what we're going to do now is um, move into the second missionary journey where we have Paul traveling with Silas. Um, and Timothy, and also Luke, who's the author of Acts. And now what they're doing is heading west into Europe. So the last time out, you would have seen Paul and company over here in Philippi. Um, And today, all that we're going to be doing is just continuing the journey west. So we're going to be hitting these two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. Okay, so hopefully that just gets you oriented for what we're going to be doing. Now, we all know that when Paul was going on these missionary journeys, he was a pioneer missionary for Christianity. So no one in these places had really heard anything about Jesus before. But also we know that he wasn't a pioneer missionary for the God of the Bible, um, because the Jews were a great trading people, and they'd been in and around the cities of this whole region for hundreds of years. Um, And so there were little synagogues uh, worshipping and living in these cities all around the eastern Mediterranean coast. And so that was Paul's strategy, that he would rock up in these new towns, and each place that he went, he would start in the synagogues, where there was already uh, something to begin with. And that's what we're going to find him doing in our passage today. So um, let's stand together, turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, and we're going to read the first 15 verses of this together. Acts 17, starting at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, just as we've just said. And as was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, said Paul. Some of the Jews were persuaded And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house, and they're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, that's the second city on our map. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day 
to see if what Paul said was really true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, so take a seat. That's what we have to work with this morning. Okay, let's start with a bit of a story. Um, Something that happened uh, not too far from here in 1894, just around the lake from us in Chicago. Um, 1894 saw the inauguration of the Ryerson Physics Laboratory at the University of Chicago. Um, And the inauguration address was given by a very eminent American physicist called Albert A. Mickelson, who went on subsequently to win the Nobel Prize. And the inauguration address that he gave has um, become slightly infamous because of a particular remark that he made, and I'm going to read it to you now. Mickelson said, and I quote, Today, the more important fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered. And these are now so firmly established that the possibility of their ever being supplanted by new discoveries is exceedingly remote. Oh. <laughs> Mickelson was speaking as an expert in classical physics. And it was his view that classical physics, which is made up of the insights that come from Galileo and uh, Isaac Newton and Laplace and Michael Faraday and people like that, he believed that those, th- those people had revealed so much and it was so complete that there was very little else to find out. Kind of a silly thing to say in front of a bunch of hopeful physics students, wasn't it? Not very motivating. Um, but the speech is infamous now, obviously, because of how wrong he turned out to be. Little did he know, on the other side of the Atlantic, a 15-year-old lad called Albert Einstein uh, <laughs> was just about to begin a career in science that would blow the entire foundations of classical physics to smithereens. Just a few years later, Einstein published a paper, a modest effort entitled The Theory of Special Relativity, um, which shattered all of the fundamental assumptions of Michelson's world, and he created, in doing that, an enormous challenge for physicists everywhere. Because they had to decide, look, are we going to continue with the safe, convenient, uh, well-known, predictable world of Newton and co., even though it has a few kind of niggling problems right down in the last decimal points of the evidence? Or are we going to dive in with Einstein into this strange world full of strange conclusions, which Einstein uh, was... uh, explaining, and those of you who know anything about relativity will know how weird it really is. Um, Einstein said that uh, the the faster you go, the heavier you get. Doesn't sound right, does it? If I jump in my car and start heading down the 131 at a reasonable speed, I'm hoping that I'm not going to put on a few pounds. But actually, you really do. Well, not a few pounds, actually a few thousands of a thousandth of a thousandth of a gram, but you really do. Einstein said that there's a maximum speed that anything can possibly go. Now, that doesn't sit well, does it? You ought to be able to go faster and faster and faster. But no, can't go faster than light, said Einstein. So all these weird things, Einstein was asking the physics community to accept, and it was difficult for people to believe that it could really be true. But I'm mentioning all this stuff because Paul was bringing a really similar challenge to the people in Thessalonica and Berea, to the one that Einstein brought to the people of his time. You see, these guys in Thessalonica and Berea believed that they had the answer to every question because they had the established Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, which was the classical physics of their time. And Paul came to tell them, hey, you're missing something really important in the data. He was drawing their attention to niggling little problems, you know, those inconvenient passages that anticipate God coming as a man and the Messiah dying and rising, not just being a mighty king. And starting with those details, Paul's intention was to turn their thinking absolutely upside down. He wanted to show them that this king, this Messiah that they thought they were waiting for, had already come. And they'd killed him. And he'd risen. And now he was demanding their worship. So you see, just like Einstein's theory of relativity, Paul's explanation of God's plan was going to create a huge challenge for these people in these cities. And we're going to watch to see how they react in our message today. And I think it's going to create some challenges for us as well as we go through it. So let's just listen up 
find out how we react to this revolutionary message that Paul had. So let's dive into it. Starting in verses 2 and 3, there we get a glimpse of Paul's approach. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. You can see why this would be an effective argument for Christianity, can't you? If you can explain and prove to a bunch of people who are waiting for the Messiah that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, well, there aren't that many other candidates, are there? Kind of got to be Jesus. But Paul has got a particular strategy for getting people to that conclusion, and it's got two parts. He starts by explaining why the Messiah had to suffer and rise, and then he goes after proof. He says he's going to demonstrate it from the Bible. So let's see if we can uh, rebuild his argument here this morning. What would you say if I asked you to do the first thing that Paul does to explain why the Messiah had to suffer and rise? The Bible uh, gives us an answer which runs right through its entire story, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The message is this, that the human race began its existence. We began our existence with a priceless gift, that we were given the gift of friendship with God. I don't know whether you remember that MasterCard campaign that ran for a few years about things that are priceless. Uh, You know, there are some things that money can't buy, and for everything else, there's MasterCard. Um, And it set up a whole bunch of things, didn't it, which were priceless, you know, time with your spouse, uh, enjoying your new puppy, all of these things which you can't buy. (laughs) Um, You probably remember that one with the newspaper all over the floor. Um, Anyway, um, we're familiar with that idea of pricelessness, aren't we, that there are certain things that money can't buy. But the gift of friendship with God is priceless in certainly all of that sense, but a slightly more technical sense, in fact, a more absolute sense sense than that. See, the Bible tells us that God is infinitely good. And so friendship with him, by definition, is infinitely valuable. Nothing can be given in exchange for that, can it? So anyway, we know what happened. This offer, this offer of a priceless gift was given to Adam and Eve. But they decided that rather than being friends with God, that they actually wanted to be God. And all of our hearts naturally make the same choice. Now, I don't know whether you ever kind of take time to reflect on this, but I really recommend this. Just thinking, would I I have done what Adam and Eve did? Um, I think naturally in our hearts, this really is where we're at. Think of a good example of this from my own experience, but I challenge you to think of your own. Um, Ruth and I have just come back from three weeks in England getting our visas sorted out. And that transatlantic journey, as you can imagine, with three tiny kids has got moments of stress. Um, (laughs) And in those moments of stress, God kind of speaks to us, doesn't he? And he reminds us, you know, of his wisdom, what it looks like to have him be God. And it's encouraging us to be patient and gentle because God has been patient and gentle with us, to be kind, to be thankful. But in those moments, I find myself playing the Adam and Eve card. And I say, hey, God, I think I could do a better job of being God than you could. You know, I'm really stressed out here and I'm tired and I'm being given grief from all sides, and I think things are going to be much better if I'm cross and angry and irritable and harsh. Um, And so I end up living this I know better than you, God, kind of life. Uh, Turns out, actually, that I really don't know better than God. It's a miserable result when I put that into practice, but I unfailingly do. So we show every day that we think what Adam and Eve thought and that we would have done what Adam and Eve would have done. But the problem for us is, is that if we say no to God... And if we say no to that priceless gift of friendship with him, it's a really big deal. Because we've been made to possess something which is priceless. And if we've rejected it, we're now infinitely far from where we should be. By turning our backs on bottomless goodness, we cause bottomless offense. We've incurred a bottomless debt. And the problem with bottomless debt, isn't it, is that it requires endless repayment. Let's do the math here. Say I owe the bank 10,000 bucks, and I can repay it at $1,000 a year. Uh, So 10,000 divided by $1,000 a year, it's going to take me 10 years to repay that debt. But $10,000, it's a lot, but it's not bottomless debt. So let's jack it up a bit. Let's say I owe a million dollars, and I can repay it at $1,000 a year. 
Now, it's going to take me a thousand years to repay that million dollars. But even a million dollars isn't a bottomless debt. See, if I owe a bottomless debt, I will never be able to repay it however long I pay for. Bottomless debt divided by finite repayments equals endless repayment. And you see that it doesn't change at all, no matter how well equipped I am to pay. I suggested that I might repay it $1,000 a year. But if I'd paid it $5 a year, it wouldn't have made any difference. Or if I had repaid it a million dollars a year, it wouldn't have made any difference. I'm still facing endless repayments. That's just the way that it works. And this is our situation before God. If we truly understand the priceless gift of friendship with him that we were first created to possess, and how far from it we fall, we realize the trouble that we're in, and also the differences between us in terms of how well-equipped we think we are to impress God are completely irrelevant. Maybe one of us thinks that we can repay God at the moral equivalent of $1,000 a year, and we think we can do that by being good and maybe having a strong family background and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe another one of us thinks that we can do better than that and we can repay God at the moral equivalent of a million dollars a year because we have been absolutely going for this all of our lives and our family have from way back when and we've read our Bible and we've done our duty and we really think we've got it nailed down. But even if that were true, even if it were possible to repay our debt to God in any meaningful sense, do you see that the differences between us don't mean a thing? Because all of us are facing endless repayment if we're trying to do it with these finite offerings that we can bring. And of course, the Bible questions the whole idea of whether we can repay God in any meaningful sense at all. Isaiah tells us that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. So the very effort that we make to pay the debt back actually ends up just driving it further and further down. So how does all this relate to Paul's message Well, this is actually the reason why the Messiah had to suffer and die. All the math boffins here this morning, and I trust there are a few of you. I can see Randy Heckman out there. I'm hoping there are some others with with him. Um, You all know that there's only one thing that we can do, one thing that can be done to alter this equation that we're playing with here. There's only one way to avoid the need for endless repayment. It's only if we can divide infinite debt by infinite virtue. And there's only one person who can offer that kind of repayment, and that's God. Think about this for a minute. Think about who God is. The Bible tells us that he is the creator of everything. He called everything that is into being, and he could do it again and again if he wanted to. You know, God didn't get to the end of the six days of creation and think, never again, I am exhausted. God could just do that again and again if he wanted So do you see that what that tells us about his life, his existence, his kind of inherent energy is that it is itself infinite, it's infinitely valuable. But actually, it's even bigger than that because the Bible tells us that God was infinitely satisfied before he even made anything. He didn't have to make the world to fill some gaping hole in his life. So God is not just infinitely good, which is an amazing and wonderful thing, infinitely powerful and creative, but also infinitely satisfied, infinitely at rest. And Paul's argument is that God offers all of that. He offers that to pay our debt. On the cross, bottomless debt meets bottomless virtue, and it's extinguished. It just disappears. That endless repayment that we're up against is just completely absorbed. You know, Jesus carried our debt on the cross, and when he died, I'm really struck as I've been preparing this by that, the last words that he says. He says, it is finished. And we tend to look at that and think, okay, he's just saying, well, I've been through this terrible agony, and now it's finished. But actually, can you see now that he's saying something very deliberately because we would never be able to say it? If we were bearing our debt ourselves before God, we'd never get to the finish line. We'd never be able to say, it is done, it's over, it's extinguished, it's annihilated, it no longer exists. But Jesus is able to do that because he yields up this bottomless, infinite goodness that he has. It fully satisfies and swallows the debt that all of us who trust him would have to pay. Now, I think that that's a really wonderful, wonderful truth. I don't know whether you're kind of coming in here this morning struggling with guilt or uh, worried that, you know, there are things in your life which are not... uh, 
which kind of inhibit you coming to the Lord in some way. Um, I certainly feel like that, actually. You know, I feel like after all of this traveling, I don't feel that I've really been walking with him as closely as I would want to. And it's really easy to think, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not where I need to be with God. I need to work my way up to it. But what the Bible teaches us is that 2,000 years, 2000 years ago, there was a moment in history when all of that debt and all of that guilt was summed up in one place. And Jesus said to it, it's finished, done. And if you trust him, that's you. It's gone. Now, we can express all this kind of mathematically, can't we? And that's what we've been doing so far. But it isn't just maths. It's not simply the case that we have a certain kind of need and that God has a certain set of resources and that the two things equal each other and A plus B equals C. Done. Now, there's a world of difference between that kind of transactional view of what is happening on the cross and what actually motivated Jesus to die for us. Um, if you were able to do a kind of reality TV show insight into my life, which I don't recommend, and then you were to set up cameras in our home, I think you would pretty quickly realize, um, uh, watching the way that I handle myself, that I'm someone who has a desperate need for a partner, um, and that if I wasn't married, I would be hopelessly adrift in almost all areas of life. Um, and so you could say that I have a particular type of gap in my life for a very saintly woman, and I'm fortunate to be married to a very saintly woman. And so you could just say A plus B equals C. Done. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Marriage is not just a transaction. You know, the reason why I wake up early in the morning and unload the dishwasher is not simply because Ruth has a dishwasher unloading gap in her life and I have the dishwasher unloading skills required to meet it, which is pretty much what I do contribute to our marriage. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I'm good, honestly. I'm, um, it's love. It's love. It's not just A plus B equals C. And so we need to understand that that's what Jesus' death is about for us. Not only is it this amazing mathematical truth that infinite virtue extinguishes infinite debt forever, but that Jesus does it. He willingly pays that terrible price because he loves you. So that's what Paul has, I think when it comes to explaining why the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise. But then Luke goes on and he says, uh, Paul proves it. That's kind of a strong word to use, isn't it? That would be bold. You're um, maybe out for a drink with some friends. Um, They're asking you about your Christian faith and they say, you know, tell me all about it. You know, I don't think this sounds very reasonable. And you say, I can prove it. Whoa, big claim. Paul thinks he can do it. It's striking that Paul actually... Uh, approaches it this way. He doesn't just rest on his own authority and say, I'm an apostle, believe me. No, he thinks that it's important to be able to establish the truth of Christianity on the basis of some external authority. And the external authority that he chooses is the Bible, isn't it? Because he's dealing with a Jewish audience. Now, I think this is really important for us because I believe the Bible expects us to be able to do the same thing. This story is not just here so that we can read it and emulate either the Bereans or the Thessalonians, whichever one of the audiences we feel gets it right. We're not here just to emulate the evangelized. We're intended to be emulating the evangelist. God has commanded all of us with the same command that he put on Paul. We're all intended to be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're intended to come to passages like this for coaching. And what Paul does here, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and then rise, is a really important part of this evangelism playbook that Paul wants to coach. You see, it's not enough for us just to be able to go out and tell an appealing story about how Jesus means so much to us. It's wonderful to be able to do that. Not good enough just to be able to tell an appealing story about how much we enjoy worshipping him and how much happier he's made us. Because the issue is there are so many other appealing stories out there. You know, our Muslim friends and neighbors have got an appealing story about how much Allah has done for them. Hello Magazine has got an appealing story about the way that it thinks it's going to meet your deepest needs. So the issue is those things, if we just kind of face them at the same level and just say, we have an appealing story about Christianity as well, ultimately we'll just get washed out in the noise. Christianity is more than that. Christianity claims that it can actually be justified. It can stand up to scrutiny, and we need to be able to demonstrate that. 
And I think it would do us uh, service well to lift a, a, a page out of Paul's actual playbook here. You know, he's going in and proving from the Bible that the Messiah that actually came is the Messiah that the Bible anticipates. Well, in our town, there are lots of people who would be ready, ready to be persuaded by that. There are plenty of people in Grand Rapids who know enough about the Bible to know that it's a reliable guide for life. They don't necessarily know or believe what it really says about the Messiah, but if we can prove it to them from the Bible, that's a great place to be. So how will we do it? How would we prove that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the Bible? Well, Paul gives us an example, not in this passage, but if you flip back to Acts 13, maybe look at this later, we see Paul uh, explaining uh, to Jews in Sidian Antioch um, how it is that the Messiah um, who has actually come, Jesus, lines up with what we read in the Bible. And he does it from Psalm 16. That's the psalm that, uh, where we get that line where it says uh, that um, the Messiah will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, uh, nor will God allow him to see decay. It's a striking prophecy about Jesus dying and rising. Now, how will we be with that in our hands? Will we be able to say, hey, look, this was written a thousand years before Jesus? It points to him conclusively. Uh, and then build from there an argument to say, look, the Bible itself expects a Messiah who won't just be this moral example, you know, this person who shows you how to be good. It expects a Messiah who will die for your sin and extinguish it. Perhaps even more strikingly, we could go to Acts 8. There you've got Philip opening up Isaiah 53, that amazing passage that talks about how the Messiah will bear our pain and suffering and that he would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and that his punishment would bring us peace. Again, a striking passage from the Bible written 600 years before Jesus, showing that the gospel is not about a wonderful moral example who we can follow by being good, but about a Messiah who takes and wraps up everything we ever did wrong and then pays for it out of his own riches. Perhaps, though, if we want to really follow Paul's footsteps, um, we shouldn't just be going to some individual proof texts because Paul believes that the entire scripture teaches this. So maybe it would be great to think about, you know, sitting down with a friend who is struggling with this stuff or someone on our street corner who we would like to help become more confident in the Bible um, and do a study across a whole section. You know, Mark's gospel would be an amazing place to go. I don't know how familiar you are with Mark. It's really simple. It divides into two halves. First half of Mark, the first eight chapters, is all about why did Jesus come? And it shows us his miracles and his teaching. I'm sorry, it's all about who Jesus is. Forgive me. First eight chapters, all about who Jesus is. It shows us his miracles, his teaching, and it leads us to the conclusion he can only be God. First eight chapters. Second eight chapters, the final part of the book, then asks the question, why did he come? And we see Jesus walking resolutely towards Jerusalem to suffer and die. So you get the whole book shouting this story. God himself has come. He's come to suffer and die. And again, we could explain that to someone and help them see from the scripture that this is really what God has had in mind all along. Now, you might ask, OK, well, this is all very well if I'm dealing with someone who believes that the Bible is a decent foundation to start from. That's where Paul is in our passage, isn't he? But not everybody is there. Um, I was particularly struck by that, I guess, by being back in England. You know, there are tons of people that I know are good friends who you could argue till you're blue in the face that uh, this is a robust biblical argument. They wouldn't disagree with you, but then say, but the Bible means nothing to me. It's just one among many books. Uh, it's a myth. Uh, it's uh, inconsistent. It's bonkers. Uh, it's full of things that don't make any sense. So what do you do with a person like that? And I think we mustn't fool ourselves that there aren't people like that here in Grand Rapids too. And actually, some of us may be there. And let's not be, feel too bad about that either. You know, I was that person when I was a student sitting in a big congregation like this, thinking everyone else seems really confident in the Bible, but I'm not sure. You know, if that's us, don't fear, because Paul is ready to deal with that too. So we're going to see it next time out when he goes to Athens. If he's dealing with an audience which can't take the Bible as the start point, he navigates them there. He's not afraid of it. He doesn't think, oh, well, if you don't believe the Bible, I've got nothing to say to you. Far from it. He's actually got a way to help people have confidence in Scripture. So what I'll do here, this will be a bit quick, but for those of you who maybe feel this is particularly relevant, scribble down a few notes. I'm going to give you four bullet points of how you might do this in practice. And then maybe when we get to Athens, we'll, we'll flesh it out a bit more. 
So you're dealing with someone who doesn't think the Bible's a robust starting point. I think the first thing that you need to get clear is that belief in God is rational. Now, there are lots of voices out there in the world at the moment that tell us that that's not true. So you're going to have to engage with that stuff. You know, the Richard Dawkinses, the Daniel Dennett's of this world out there saying that what we need to do is break the spell because belief in God is just a myth. It's just something that's going on in our own heads. And if we engage with that stuff, I think that we're going to have some interesting surprises. Uh, There are plenty of places where we can agree with them. You know, because their argument is that belief in God is irrational. And there are certainly some gods out there that it is irrational to believe in. And they do a great job on our behalf of just completely destroying them. Um, they do a great job destroying the new agey kind of God that just comes from inside myself, my aspiration for what I really want God to be. Dawkins and Dennett just annihilate that. Um, they do a really good job with what we call deist gods. A deist god is a god who sits on a cloud somewhere in the distance, creates the world, and then stands back and says, you get on with it. Dawkins and Dennett, I think, do an amazing job showing that that actually just is fundamentally contradictory to some of the basic observations we make about the natural world. But if you really work with these guys, what you find is that there is a very particular type of god that just sails above their analysis and that isn't brushed by it. But this is a god who is enormously vast, a God who is so immense that not only would he make everything, but supervise everything in individual detail all the time, and that all the natural processes that we see in the world and even what's going on in our own minds is all under his sovereign control moment by moment. Well, that's the kind of God that the Bible says exists. Great. That brings us to bullet point number two. Next thing you would need to show would be if that kind of God really does exist, he has to speak to us, right? If that's the kind of God we're really dealing with, there is no hope that we could work him out ourselves. It would be like a little worm trying to work out what's going on in a human's brain. It's a complete category mistake. You know, the, we wouldn't be able to determine what God was like just working on our own if he's like that. So it leaves you realizing that God has to speak. And that's the third bullet point. That's the point where you would take someone to Jesus. And just say, okay, go with me here. I know that you don't necessarily think the Bible's reliable, but just read this story about this man. Maybe show them some of the historical evidence to show how reliable this part of the Bible really is. Um, And I think certainly what happened to me as a non-Christian when I was in my teens reading these stories is I just had the same reaction that people who were there had. They said, who is this man? Like, even the winds and waves obey him. Look at what he said. There's nobody else like this in history, in literature. This guy looks it would look if there was an infinite God out there somewhere trying to communicate to us. And then that brings us to the fourth thing. Because if you're willing, if you've got someone to the point where they're willing to give Jesus a shot, then you would say, well, what did Jesus think about the Bible? Okay, well, Jesus thought the Bible was reliable from beginning to end. And he proves it from his ministry. Pretty much everything he said is drawn out of the Old Testament. He anticipates the writing of the New Testament. So you've brought someone to the start line. They don't need to be there. You don't have to assume that someone's got that piece of logic down. You can get them there. And I think the argument of this passage is we need to be able to do this. Paul could do it. We'll really be a blessing to our neighbors if we can do it too. All right. So that's the start. Paul goes in and he explains and then he proves why the Messiah had to suffer and rise. But let's think now about the reaction. How do these two cities respond to what Paul had to say? It's pretty clear from the narrative that it's all about contrast. You know, um, we get that thing in verse 11 about the Bereans being more noble than the Thessalonians. And actually, it's really striking as you go through Acts. There's nothing else like the Bereans. Thessalonica is absolutely typical. In every city, Paul got some reaction, some positive reaction, but overwhelmingly, people were hostile. But the Bereans are weird. The Bereans stand out like a sore thumb. So we need to think about their reaction, think about why that is. So think about Thessalonica to start with. This is giving us our model of normal, uh, and normal means opposition, opposition to the gospel. But it's not incomprehensible opposition, is it? You know, imagine that you're one of these Thessalonian Jews and this new and apparently crazy preacher rolls into town saying that everything you know about the Old Testament is kind of upside down and wrong. Their response was to defend what they knew against what they saw to be heresy. They wanted to shut Paul up. They wanted him to leave. Will you please politely depart the scene you're causing an embarrassment? And I think we can see why. You know, if a new teacher came into Grand Rapids telling us everything we know about God was upside down and wrong, 
we kind of feel like, oh, I think maybe it would be nice if you left. But if we think a little bit harder about what's going on here, I think that we can see that their effort to defend their faith against apparent heresy maybe isn't all that it seems. See, they set themselves up as people who are all about commitment to God's words, don't they? But I think their actions show that really that's not quite what they think it is. Did you notice the very first thing that these guys do in their campaign to try and resist this heresy from Paul is they rustle up some bad characters and manipulate them into forming a mob and starting a riot. Well, the last time I looked, forming mobs and starting riots was heresy, right? (laughs) Where in the Bible do we find justification for associating with bad characters and manipulating to our own sinister ends? Nowhere. So the Thessalonian Jews were telling people that they were in the business of taking the Bible seriously, but actually, in practice, they show that they've got very little concern for what the Bible really says. The same thing happens in verse 7. They go before the local Roman governor trying to get Paul and Silas thrown out of the city for defying Caesar's decrees. Well, the decree they've got in mind here, you probably know, Caesar um, commanded everyone everywhere in his empire to worship him at least alongside their traditional gods. And it was true. Paul was telling people not to obey that decree. He didn't think anyone should be worshipping Caesar under any circumstances. But the problem here is that the Jews didn't believe that either. They didn't believe that people should be worshipping Caesar. So can you see this is complete hypocrisy? They themselves were defying the decree to worship Caesar. But it seemed okay to them to conveniently forget all of that when they needed a pretext to drive Paul out of the city. Now, of course, they might have argued, well, the end justifies the means. But I think ultimately, it's kind of a barren and a a morally bankrupt argument, that, isn't it? It's always the means we use that show the ends that we value most. I think the, uh, the prayer vigil that's going on at the moment down on Fulton outside the abortion clinic is just a great example of doing this right. Because that's not just an attempt to uphold biblical values, is it? It's being done in a way that models biblical values. Every time I drive past that thing, I just think, wow, that looks like the way that God operates. It's peaceful, it's gentle, it's demonstrating dependence on the king. And that's a great test for us to apply as we think about what kind of ministries uh, or what kind of uh, Christian service to get involved in. You know, if we're thinking about what teachers to listen to, what authors to read, we can ask ourselves, does the way in which they do their ministry really line up with the things that they say? And maybe if it doesn't, we ought to think twice about getting stuck into it. But all of this has got to go further than that. You know, it's not enough for us to look outside and say, you know, who is getting this right and who's getting this wrong? We need to look at ourselves, don't we? And say, do, are we getting this right or are we getting this wrong? Do our own actions really tally with the things that we say that we believe? And I know that this really strikes me, particularly as a parent. I'm sure that um, other people can relate to this. And maybe think about this too in your life as a student or as an employer. Um, you know, for me as a parent, I think, okay, there are all sorts of things I'm trying to do, trying to say, uh, which are communicating the values that I have as a Christian and ground rules that we try and establish and things that we read together. Um, but then I've got to ask myself, does the way that I do that really communicate that effectively to my kids? Um, you know, do my worries and the way that I let them show, does my temper, the way I let that show, Does our use of money, does our use of priorities in our free time really reflect that? Because ultimately, you know, that's the thing that they're really going to see. And I think the the challenge to us here is the Bereans, isn't it? You know, when you flip onto that part of the passage, um, it's just striking that they're committed to God's word. But then when Paul, this new teacher, comes up, their, their reaction to him demonstrates that commitment. The way that they respond to him is shaped by the Bible. So they don't stand on their own pride. They don't try and defend their own territory. Uh, And we need to pray for that kind of consistency between our words and actions too. Next thing, Thessalonica still. Did you notice that word that's used about them in verse 5? It says that they were jealous. Initially, this put me in mind of the Pharisees, you know, when their reaction to Jesus is jealousy, isn't it? That they can't stand the fact that uh, he's claiming the place that they used to have 
Because believe it or not, the Pharisees were the popular teachers of their time. People thought that they were great because they were so committed. And then suddenly Jesus turns up and everybody disappears. It's like the Pharisees, where have my crowd gone? They're jealous. And it's a kind of like a, a, a covetousness, isn't it, that's behind that jealousy. But there's more to jealousy than that, isn't there? There's more than one type of it. There's a different type of jealousy, which actually God himself tells us he experiences. And that's, that's relational jealousy. So that's the kind of jealousy we might experience maybe as a husband for a wife. Um, or maybe um, the kind of jealousy in the Bible, God tells us that he feels it when we wander off and worship other things. He feels jealous for us. And I think there's something of that jealousy in this experience for the Thessalonians. You know, we've got to ask ourselves, were they justified in feeling this way? On the one hand, you can feel for them, can't you? They're, they're the leaders of the synagogue. They've had people uh, being part of their community for a long time. Now Paul has come into their town with a new message and people are wandering off. And they're thinking, oh, well, you know, we care for these people. You know, we have a relationship with them. You know, this is a shame. But the passage here in Acts is trying to teach us that even though that feels right, it's actually wrong. Luke tells us that the Bereans were more noble because they didn't feel that way. They let their people go and follow Paul. The issue is that even though this kind of jealousy is justified in a relationship like a marriage, it's not justified in a relationship between synagogue leaders and their people or pastors and people or churches and people. The mistake that the Thessalonians are making is they think the primary relationship here is between the leader and the people, between the church and the people. And so if another leader appeared, they got jealous. But that's not really a leader's role in the biblical vision of faith The leader can only ever be the best man. Leaders have this role in introducing the bride to the bridegroom. But the only person who can ever feel legitimately jealous is the bridegroom himself, right? Not Not the best man. So you see, real ministry is about helping people to draw near to God. It's not about a relationship between church and people or between a particular leader and people. It's a relationship between God and his people. So it's not an appropriate jealousy if we see people drawing near to God through another ministry for us to say, oh, well, I really wish it was happening under my ministry. John the Baptist gives us a great model of this, doesn't he? The Bible shows us at the beginning of his um, ministry, we've got people coming out to him from all over the region. He's immensely popular. But then when Jesus comes, people go away from John and they follow Jesus. And he could have been jealous, but he said he must become greater and I must become less. But he realized that the reason he was doing what he was doing was to lead people to Christ, and it was job done. Paul finds exactly the same balance in 2 Corinthians. You might look this one up later, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's trying to woo this Corinthian church back from the brink, and he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And we think, well, oh, you know, hold on, pastor shouldn't be jealous of his people. Well, listen. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ, says Paul. His jealousy is not for himself as a husband, but for Jesus as a husband. Now, of course, this doesn't give us a biblical mandate for church hopping. You know, I think that there are good reasons to stay with your church. God is faithful. So if we want to be like God, we should be faithful ourselves. Um, Sticking with the church, I think, is good for us spiritually. So it turns our focus gradually as we get more stuck in and more involved in the congregation. It turns our focus from uh, being served and being ministered to, to serving and ministering to others. And when we stick with the church, we kind of acknowledge the truth, don't we, that uh, there isn't any kind of miracle, perfect solution alternative out there. You know, some people move from church to church. Um, It puts me in mind of um, soccer clubs that move from manager to manager, Um, you know, and they spin the, spin the dice every few months, get a new manager in. And the reason is that it, when something new happens and we go to a new place, it seems exciting. It seems the preaching seems amazing. It seems that anything could happen. But then it all settles down again. And we realize that actually it's not the new church that's having that effect on us. Uh, but it's just the change of scene that's injecting some new energy into our lives. You see those managers shifting football clubs never seem to make any progress up the league. And I think that can be where we are spiritually when we shift around. So there are good reasons to commit yourself to a church, but sticking with the church shouldn't be done because you feel married to it. None of us belong to Crossroads 
in the sense that the church should feel jealous for us. We belong to Jesus. And as a church, we, we will celebrate people growing closer to him, whether that happens under our roof or not. So if a new pastor did come into town, full of the Spirit, preaching the gospel, blessing you in your Christian walk, by all means, go and hear him. You need to know that as a church, we're not lording it over you. We want to be growing closer to God and serving him more effectively ourselves. We really want everyone here to be having that same experience. And whether you do that best here, or whether you find another place to do that best, that's fine. And the striking thing is that that was the attitude of the Bereans. It's amazing, isn't it? It wasn't a question for them whether Paul would take people out from underneath their influence. The question for them was, is Paul leading people closer to God? And they tested that. They sought to figure out whether that was really true by holding it all up against the lens of the Bible. So do you see now why it's really important that we're convinced that the Bible is the touchstone for our beliefs? That's beliefs. That's why I invested so much time in it earlier as we were going through this stuff. It's really important that we know that for ourselves. It's really important that we can lead other people to that place of conviction. Because ultimately, that's a really important part of mature Christianity. If we're going to be like these Bereans, we have to hold up what's coming into us. Up, we need to hold it up against Scripture to see whether it's reliable. Kind of striking, isn't it? The Bereans present us with this model of uh, what you might call godly open-mindedness, which is interesting. You know, you wouldn't think the evangelical church was necessarily the first place you would come for a lesson in open-mindedness, but here it is. These guys really aren't convinced that they have all the answers. They're not convinced that they know everything there is to know. They're open to the possibility that they might be wrong. And what they do is they bring it all to the Bible. They don't just say, oh, we can work it out. We're so cool. No, they go to the Bible because they know that that's the first place to go. Now, there's a reason why you might uh, be surprised that uh, the evangelical church uh, should be a center for open-mindedness. You know, it's true that we do have a deposit of uh, truth to hold on to as a church. It's right that we should be uh, bold in doing that and determined in doing it. And the definition of open-mindedness, which is being pushed at us by the world, is not one that we would necessarily uh, support. You know, open-mindedness, as it looks like to our culture, would say, you know, come on, you stuffy Christians, you know, can't you just be a bit more open-minded about, say, same-sex marriage or other faiths offering an equal road to God? Well, we're not about to do those things, but we're not about to do them for the same reason that the Bereans didn't do them. Not because we are so confident in ourselves that we think we have the answer to every question. Mm -mm. No, we're not going to do those things because we're holding them up against Scripture, against what God himself has said. You see, these Bereans were hardcore, conservative, orthodox Jews. They're miles away from Jerusalem, so they probably hadn't got the first clue what had happened with Jesus. And here they get this preacher rolling into town with all this crazy stuff, saying that God could become a man. Heresy that the Messiah would have to suffer and die. Heresy. All sorts of stuff that should have shaken their beliefs to the core. But the striking fact is that they didn't close it all down like that. They didn't take the responsibility on themselves to work it all out. No, they took it to the Bible. They asked the text the questions that Paul's ministry was posing. They were open to the possibility that they might be wrong. Now, I wonder whether that description would work for you. I know that Uh, When I test myself about this, I'm not sure that I'm as strong with it as I really should be. I know that practically I find it much easier to kind of subcontract out this responsibility for weighing things against the Bible. You know, uh, if my friends think it's what the Bible says, well, kind of, I think it's what the Bible says as well. If John Piper says it's what the Bible says, well, I think it's what, what it must be too. But do you see the problem with that? If we look to our friends or if we look to other Christian leaders, however great or godly they might be, It's a problem because the things we believe to be true are not true because our friends believe them. They're not true because John Piper says them. The things we believe are true only if God says them. And that's something that we can only determine by holding things up to the Bible. So this is actually one of the most important reasons why we have Bibles in our hands. And as a church, it's our job to help each other do this. The Bereans examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I think that provides us with a model to follow. 
So are we in the book? Are we in the scriptures? Do we know how to navigate them? And if we don't, you know, if we don't feel like we're the person who would be able to hear what Paul said and test it against the scriptures, well, I, we would love to help you. Um, I've actually got some books up here I'd be really happy to recommend to anyone who feels they just want, you know, even if you're right at the beginning of the journey, what's my first way in to knowing a little bit more about this amazing book? Because it is our responsibility to know it. Because if we want to look after our spiritual lives, and as we grow and we start to be responsible for the spiritual lives of others in our families and in our churches and small groups, we need to be able to go to the Bible for answers. So in this passage, Luke is holding up for us the Bereans as kind of a role model, a role model of not feeling that we have to protect our beliefs from external challenges because we don't feel they're strong enough to cope. He gives us the Bereans a role model of believing that God's truth is so robust that it will hold up to anything that we can throw at it. The Bereans, you see, opened themselves up to the possibility that they might be wrong, and by doing that, they were blessed by gaining the full riches of the gospel. And we just need to ask ourselves, are we able and are we willing to follow their example? So let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for this passage from Scripture. We thank you for the Bereans and their amazing example to us. God, I just pray so much that you would make us a church where we are convinced that your word is truth. God, I pray that you would help us just to feed on it, just to know that we don't have to be relying on ourselves, but that we can look out to this amazing message from this amazing God who is so far above everything that we could ever imagine. And God, I pray that you would equip us too to be a blessing with that to others. God, equip us to be able to point other people to Scripture, not just to be able to say how much you've blessed us and changed us and made us happy, but to be able to say, look, this is coming from something solid. This Bible that we believe, this is rock. This is something on which we can build our lives. We pray that you would please help us to believe it and then share it with the world around us. Amen.